Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And Sorry. Uh, Just finish finish your thing. No, forget it. I've, I've lost all the momentum now. And I'm Marshall, and I'm the associate pastor at Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, mm-hmm. Ontario, Canada. <laughs> You hadn't done that one in a while. I like I was just I so had, eager, and I, and I thought I'm going to do it just to throw him off, and it worked. <laughs> oh man! Okay, so it is. It is seven degrees outside. <gasps> a balmy seven. How do you feel about that? Um, like I might be able to get rid of some of the ice that's on my driveway. <laughs> I have like a skating rink on my driveway right now. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: it's supposed to be sleeting and snowing and ice like crazy tomorrow and Friday. Mm-hmm. So I kind of get the feeling that what it's going to do is it's going to melt it down. <laughs> right. And then it's going to freeze it solid. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but by the time this drops, we'll know the answer to that. That's true. Right yeah. now. And, and I might be in an arm cast because I slipped <laughs> and fell. <laughs> I am, I'm, a, I'm a pretty clumsy person. Although I read an article recently. That left-handed people, of which I, I am one, mm-hmm. uh, are like twice as likely to get severely injured in an accident. Huh. I wonder if that's because most things are made with right-handed people in mind. So that's part of it, I think. But I think another part of it is, I, I think it's like a difference of like how your brain works. Like they're clumsier in general. Like I'm just, I am a, cl- I'm a very clumsy person. I don't know. If we have any left-handed listeners out there. Let us know if you're clumsy. If, if our listener is left-handed. <laughs> if our listener, yeah, I don't know if our listener is left. There's like a one in ten chance. Um, yeah, I don't know. So like, if anyone is gonna fall and like injure themselves, it won't be my, you know, it won't be the mailman, it won't be my wife, it'll be me. Yeah, I I don't wish you to be in a cast. Yeah, that's not where I'm going with this. Okay, but for the irony of the ominous. <laughs> There he was <laughs> talking about this, and sure enough, it happened. Oh, boy. Yeah. Who knows? Who but knows? that's not why we're here. That is not why we're here. We're here to talk about history. We are. Lots of history today. Lots of it. And uh, the time period, just to sort of set the date, mm-hmm. we're talking like 275-ish to 350-ish. Sure. We want to put a century's gap in there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. very end of the 200s Beginning to the, the middle of the 300s. Sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. that's a good That's a good window. All right, kick us off. Well, um, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Rome. Um, Rome as an empire is not doing well in the mid-200s to late-200s. Uh, Divisiveness. Think, yeah, there's, there's a number of significant problems. It's actually called the crisis of the third century. It's actually like a, a historical term. For this period in Rome, um, there's problems of succession, which, like, I mean, has what, always been a thing. What's new, right? Right. Um, Rome, Rome's not a, a hereditary empire in the same way that, like, medieval England was. So there's always a question mark as to who the next emperor is going to be. Um, which is really no way to operate. If you're emperor till you die, yeah, there's no way to plan ahead for that. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, if they did plan ahead for it. People would be getting killed more frequently than they were. Well, yeah. So, like, having a family tie or an endorsement from a previous emperor was important, but you also kind of were juggling what the Senate thought, what the people thought, what the army thought, especially what the army thought. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> so that, yeah. And, and, you know, the Roman Empire is kind of still pretending to be a republic, but it's, it's not. It hasn't been for like 300 years. Right. So they were in this constant state mm-hmm. of, oops, we weren't prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> over and over and over again. The same problem coming back every time, and oops, they weren't ready. Yeah. But then you throw into the mix plague. Uh, from 249 to 262, which is a little bit before our, the main time we're getting at, but the plague of Cyprian just kind of devastated the empire. Mm-hmm. And it was so severe that in some of the major cities, like uh, Alexandria, for example, they saw a 60% decline in the population. Wow. That's a plague. That's that's crazy. That's 60%. Yeah, and so and even though it meant technically there were less mouths to feed, um, it actually caused famines because some of these farms mm-hmm. would shut down because there was no one to work the fields. Right. Um, grain coming from Egypt and North Africa to Rome or these other major cities couldn't couldn't get there because there was no one on the boats. Um, so it actually created this really, really problematic situation, right? And and decimated the armies, soldiers dying, soldiers living in close proximity to one another. Mm-hmm. And that didn't help because then barbarians decided to start crossing rivers into sure. <laughs> into Rome. Yeah. So it's it's like this whole thing and there's climate change happening. So there's people pushing other people, pushing other people, and then those people come into Rome and and it's just a mess. They devalued their currency and inflation was like the denarii, which if you know there's passages talk about the denarii, right? It's like a day supposed to be a day's wages for sure. a working yep. class person. Yep. Worthless at this point. Worthless. Like it has zero value, right? So what do you do? You can't pay people. Your money's worthless. You're going back to like an exchange economy in an empire of millions and millions and millions of people. Uh, it was really, really nasty um, for like 50 years. It was really mm-hmm. bad. Uh, but then there's this guy named Diocletian. And he takes the throne and, uh, you know, through the, you know, the normal means of killing everyone else who wants the throne. Uh, But he decides he's going to fix some things. Um, One of the interesting things he does is um, he decides to set up a system with four emperors at the same time. You have two Augustuses or Augusti and you have two Caesars. So the Augustus is like the the higher, the, the senior emperor. Okay. And the Caesar is the junior emperor. And they they split up. Essentially, they they divide the Roman Empire amongst the four of them. Um, and this is just comes back to be important eventually. It, it does. In fact, when people are, people are constantly talking about what caused the fall of Rome, mm-hmm. what the mysterious fall of Rome. Right. I think it comes down to governance and lack of preparedness. Yeah. Oh, yeah logistics totally yeah it's logistics they were just mismanagement poorly organized yeah that it lasted as long as it did mm-hmm. is incredible right yeah but very poorly organized yeah yeah so you have so you have these two augusti one's kind of like rome Italy, spain the other one's got kind of greece eastern europe right and then you got your two caesars the lesser emperors are out in the fringes so one guy's got Britain and Gaul, which is essentially France, and the mm-hmm. other guys down in like Egypt, Palestine, Syria. And so you've got these four emperors kind of all working together. You still have kind of a senior amongst seniors, but uh, they figured that might be a way. We're going to shuffle things up here. We're going to try this this new system out. 
um, to kind of essentially what it what it allowed for was in these succession crises you could kind of like promise an up and comer like hey once there once we have an opening you know we'll give you Britain and mm-hmm. then maybe maybe you'll g- get to the big show eventually when you're older right so it's kind of like it's kind of this way of like kind of heading off potential divisions and assassinations before they happen right but I hope everyone listening to this who has listened to previous episodes just sees where this is going oh, right yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna give this guy who's a future up-and-comer yeah. an army yeah and we're gonna tell him you're not there yet but you're close <laughs> what you need to do is just wait yeah just wait be patient yeah don't be greedy <laughs> your turn's coming just wait in line with your army <laughs> because that's how rome worked from the beginning <laughs> this this was plan this is planned failure Right. This Seems is like it. You Seems would like almost it. think that this was sabotage. Right. Right. Yeah. Like that the, an invading army was like, you know what? We don't have the weaponry to destroy yeah. Rome. Yeah. But we're going to slip this onto someone's desk <laughs> and see if it comes to fruition. <laughs> It'll be the beginning of the end. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, the end is still a ways out, but it is. it's definitely the beginning of the end, though. It You're is. Right. They You're survive right. it, but it's. It, it's one of those situations where you're like, that crack in the wall is not going to bring the house down, mm. but that crack's going to grow. Yeah, and it will eventually. Yeah, yep. for sure. Yeah, so Diocletian, who's kind of the first amongst equals, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, finishes up his war with the Persian Empire around 299. Um, and as we mentioned before, when Rome is in a state of chaos, it's generally good for the church because they have bigger fish to fry. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're busy fighting civil wars and beating back the barbarian hordes and trying to survive plagues and famines and all this. But once the ship is kind of righted, um, it becomes a problem because Diocletian is going to be one of these guys again who wants to get back to the roots. Oh, yeah. The glory days. The nostalgia. (laughs) This is the problem with nostalgia. There... It's never, it's never the way that it really was in your head. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you always have these people that are like, we just need to get back to the simpler days. Right. Back right. to the way that it used to be. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't realize it, it never was that way. You're just perceiving it as having been that way. Right. Right. right? It, it happens to all of us in our lifetimes. Oh, yeah. Right? We can look back and we're like, oh, simpler days. I remember those days. It, we were just unaware. Yeah. And we were simpler. The times weren't simpler. Right. <laughs> right. And... And we do that when we look back historically. Oh, sure. Right? We're like, oh, all of these problems never existed before. All of a sudden, there are these problems. You're like, yeah, they were always there. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> so some of the ways that he wants to throw back mm-hmm. is just to this homogenous attitude and, and mindset mm-hmm. of the Roman people. Yep. But from the beginning, Rome's thing was, well, first I'd say this. That's the Greek mindset, right? Not the Roman mindset. Yeah, and so like maybe the early, early Roman mindset, but even then, like it was no. You know what? Though no, because it was a place where people from all over would come. Right. You yeah. would you would conquer a people. Yeah. Appoint a governor. Let them do their thing. Yeah. That was early Rome. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, no. In early Rome, everybody did things the way that I think that they should do them. <laughs> that's the way it used to be, and that's the way it should be again. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is also, ironically, 
early Rome would never have allowed one person to take that much power. Oh, never, 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 never. Yeah. But he took it in order to make it more like them, which would at some point have caused him to go, you know what? If we're really going to be like early Rome, I've got too much power. I've got to resign. I should resign. Yeah. Yeah. And give it over to someone else. Yeah. Four emperors is four too many. Um, Yeah. Yeah. He was like, one way of describing it is like, it's an activist government. So by that, I mean, he and his court had an agenda for both Mm -hmm. the public and private lives of the people of the empire. And they were not afraid to use force in order to affect behavior. So it was very much like a change your mind or I'll change it for you kind of policy Yeah, that that he was coming down with. I could, if you don't want to choose to do it, I'm going to bend your arm Mm -hmm. to make you do it. And once I've done that, you're going to be like, oh, this is what I really wanted to do all along. I just didn't realize it. Yeah. But now I'm happy and have a broken arm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Once this heals, I'm good to go. Yeah. So... So one of the things that he does after he wins this this war is he decides to engage um, in a ceremony to discern the future. Mm-hmm. And so he gets these specially trained priests to uh, read the entrails of a sacrificed animal. And the priests who are doing it are just they're trying over and over again. They just can't they just can't read it. They can't get a good a good angle on uh, this particular set of intestines. And they blame Christians who were part of Diocletian's court for the fact that they couldn't like for the fact that they couldn't read the signs. Right. And so immediately that upsets Diocletian. He's like, you guys are getting in my way of figuring out what my destiny is. Also way more Greek than Roman. Yes. Yes. This whole practice way more Greek than Roman. Yeah, He's he's all about like the original Olympian gods. So he's going like, way back is kind of his anyways yeah you're right though um so there's essentially there's a, there's a threat there's a th- the christians pose a potential threat to the relationship between the emperor and the gods and so he has this purge of believers within his court and in the army right so he decides okay here's a thing if you're a christian i don't want you anywhere near me and i don't want you fighting for for rome um which is, yeah, I mean, interesting that there were Christians in the Roman army at all, but there there obviously were because he had to put a whole process in place to, to get them out of there. Um, so that kind of happens, but that's kind of confined to the upper echelons of political society and mm-hmm. the army. But it was still significant, right? Like, So they wouldn't kill the—they weren't—at first, anyways, they weren't killing soldiers who were Christian— they were just kicking you out of the army, but right. that meant you lost your career, you lost your government pension, you lost whatever savings, like whatever the government owed you on back pay, which was usually a lot because the Romans had a hard time paying their soldiers sometimes. Um, so that was pretty significant, right? And these mm-hmm. noble people would kind of get relegated to a lower class of society. It was a couple years later that um, things really heat up. Uh, Diocletian and Galerius, so he's one of the other emperors, uh, they put their heads together to decide what to do. And, uh, and you know, they tried banning Christians from public office in the military, but they're going to need to turn the temperature up a little bit. Yep. But they don't want to make the decision on their own. No. No, they so don't. So we've got to divine the situation again. you got to go see an oracle. An oracle, which is a Greek practice. Yeah, again. The oracle of who? 
Apollo. Apollo. <laughs> they go to the Oracle of Apollo, <laughs> which is a descended practice from the Oracle of Delphi, mm-hmm. which was a Greek practice. Yeah. It's how like King Leonidas decided whether or not to go to war with Persia. It's been right. like, around for like ever. Yeah. Right. And so I think I think he was just confused. I think he thought he was Greek. <laughs> and his his throwback is throwing back to an an entirely different society. He yeah. has in mind a society that never existed. Yeah. Rome as if it were under Alexander. <laughs> that's my thought. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's, that's why that's the way yeah. I read Diocletian. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. No, I, I I can yeah, I can jive with that. Yeah, well, the Oracle of Apollo also is struggling to discern the future mm-hmm. and then again blames those impious Christians uh for not being able to get an answer. So now Diocletian and Galerius are ticked off. Right. And now it's it, it's it's going to get serious. So at this point, we're around 302, 303? Right. Yeah. Uh, it would be the last significant, uh, but the most severe persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. It is a tribulation. It's, yes, it is called. Not a small one. No. It is a great one. Yeah. It's, it, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's known as the great persecution. It is. This was as bad as it would get mm-hmm. um, for Christians in the Roman Empire, right. without question. Um, it was different because it wasn't merely persecution in kind of a roundabout way. So in the past, it would be like, hey, everyone's got to offer their sacrifices. And then some people didn't offer their sacrifices. And then they were pointed out as being Christians. And that caused the issue. This is like just going after them right so the whole the whole thing we talked about previously where they were having conversations and they're like yeah you know what don't worry about don't go looking for them but if they're going to flaunt it we can't let them flaunt the fact that they're Mm -hmm. being rebellious uh but you know do what you can not to hunt it out Mm -hmm. that is completely not the case no right and this is compounded this is compounded we don't want to get into victim blaming. That's not what we're doing. Right. But there are some ideas that are starting to develop, unbiblical, wrong ideas that are starting to develop within the church mm. that does compound the situation mm. of this great persecution. Right. The cult of martyrs and the cult of the saints. Right. So as far back as Polycarp, when, when saints were martyred for their faith, standing up in the theater saying, I will follow my God. The, the inspiration that we find in that, they found in that as yeah. well. Yeah, for sure. And their bodies were were taken and buried with honor. Their names remembered with honor. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, saints were all those people who believed, but particularly the status placed on those who died for their faith. They died in the witness of Christ. Right. And so there is no question of whether or not they're truly saints or just pretending in the moment. Right. Um, and John Christensen is going to start talking about the value of even their remains yeah. and, and things that can come with that, which is so sad because I love Christensen's commentaries yeah. on the scriptures. But he also sort of invents the cult of the saints. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, but but this this cult of the saints, this idea that, that these saints are, are bringing with them this something extra mm. 
and and this idea that martyrdom is the proof of that right does encourage a number of Christians not to flee, mm-hmm. not to keep quiet, mm-hmm. but to run into the public sphere right. and say, martyrdom is my prize. Right. Um, so they were being hunted, mm-hmm. but there are some, yeah, a significant group, not all, mm-hmm. but a good number who are seeking their martyrdom. Right as if it would bring for them some kind of extra recognition before God and the church. Yeah, assurance um, of salvation. Which is just, man, it's a tough situation. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, the, so when when this thing's kicking off, there's there's some interesting things that happen. So the first, the first of several edicts that are passed uh, c- comes out on February 23rd, which was the Feast of Terminus the God of boundaries and the idea it it was intentional. The idea is that a line was being drawn in the sand and that this day would mark the end of Christianity for at least for Diocletian and Galerius. That's what they were attempting to do. Um, Orders to burn all the scriptures and all places of worship across the entire empire Um, obviously prohibited Christians from meeting together, but it was, it got worse. Christians couldn't petition. They couldn't even speak in the court. Mm-hmm. In their defense, um, even high-ranking Christians uh, who typically had kind of been able to avoid significant persecution were no longer protected by their social status. Um, essentially, anyone who refused to surrender scripture uh, were burned alive, which which is really interesting when I was reading about this, and this is maybe a little tangent we can go on, but it was very important for Diocletian and Galerius to destroy the scriptures as much as possible. Sure. Right? Like yeah. that was that was a really that was really high on their priority list under these persecutions. They wanted to destroy the scriptures because they understood that that was foundational to the faith of mm-hmm. of the church. And right. so if they could systematically destroy all the copies of the biblical text that they had, then in their mind they were able to snuff out this movement. Uh, because it was just so central to the identity of the church, which again we still don't have a full official canon. I mean, it, it was already essentially agreed upon, yep. but but even at this early stage, right? It's um, it's it's very important that they destroy all of these writings. Yeah, that an outside group would be able to look in and say this faith does not exist without its text mm-hmm. is. I I think something for us to be proud of. Sure. Right? To Mm -hmm. to be proud of those forefathers before us that would say, no, this is our evidence, it is our direction, it is the lamp to our path, Mm -hmm. and we are going to cling to it and, and not fall into, like, well, what does the next person say? Or, or even, you know, the church and their decisions made count just as much. It always, always went back to the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so like these, these edicts start coming out in rapid succession and they're getting more severe and more severe. Um, there are so many bishops, priests and elders in the prisons that the Romans actually um, had to release criminals to make room for them in the prisons, which is just 
I mean, ironic. Happened to Jesus. Happened to Jesus. Yeah, that's true. Oh, good point. Nice parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and essentially, ultimately, it led to essentially communities would have to collectively gather in a public space all together and everybody offers sacrifices and anyone who doesn't man, woman or child executed on the spot. Right. That's how systematic this was in every town, city, town and village across the empire. Everybody had to get together all at once. And anyone who didn't offer the sacrifices was to be killed. So that's, that's a systematic. This is a, you know, and it lasts 10 years. Yeah. From 2003 to 2013. 303. Or th- sorry. What am I talking about? It's okay. I I don't do numbers. 303. 303 to 313. Yeah. 10 years yeah. of systematically, militantly mm-hmm. searching for Christians and removing them, mm-hmm. which does a couple of things. One, it tells you the size of the church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that it does is it tells you the capacity of God to preserve his people. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because over the span of 10 years, the Roman Empire was not capable of snuffing out Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, there was, and we're coming back to this whole four different emperors thing, there was one part of the empire, not the most important, not the most populated, but one of those parts of the empire uh, that was ruled by a guy named Constantius. And he wasn't really down with enforcing this persecution. Uh, And he ruled over, again, Britain and Gaul. And possibly because his wife was a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it has an effect. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Constantius and his family, uh, his descendants in particular, are going to have a significant uh, part to play in this. Um, But yeah, so so as this stuff's going on... um, systematically exterminating Christians across the vast majority of the Roman empire. But this kind of, there's this corner kind of the hinterland uh, of the empire where it's not really happening. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, yeah, again, significant. Not, not as like a, it, it wasn't the kind of thing where he was like, Christians come here because it's not going to happen. No. Right. It just was sort of kept more low key. Yeah, just like we're this thing's not, not really it. going on. We're just not going to yep. do it. <laughs> we're not going to publicly oppose it, but we're just not going to put any effort into it. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, as we said, yeah, things are different in the West. And th- this Constantius fellow has had a son uh, who would one day take his place. And his son's name was Constantine. Oh, the great villain. <laughs> the great villain. <laughs> he uh, educated... Well-educated Latin, Greek, philosophy. Uh, he grew up in the court of Diocletian because what Diocletian did is he had Constantius as one of these like minor emperors, but he kept Constantine close to him as kind of a sort of hostage to keep him in line. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to give you a bit of a leash over there, but I got your boy here. Don't worry. I'll take I'll take real good care it's of Internship. Him internship lifelong internship yeah that's great so i mean he fought lots of wars uh, many campaigns for the roman army germany syria mesopotamia yep. um but then another one of these crises comes up right and because of who his dad is there's a real good chance that constantine's going to end up dead mm-hmm. so his dad gets the emperor drunk enough to let his son 
come hang out with him in Britain for a little while. So he's kind of like, hey, can can I have my son back? Just I'm gonna do the do a campaign, try to you know beat up some some Scottish people. Can can I have them for a bit? Sure. And they're like, no. He's like, okay. And then they party a bit. He's like, can I can I have them, please? Okay, sure, yeah, I can have them. So, right. You know, it's you know, you know, you got to know if you know someone's got a vice, you can. I guess he's kind of work working that. So Constantine gets out of harm's way, and then his dad dies while they're on campaign. And the army, in typical Roman army fashion, essentially just says, "Constantine, you're you're, our, you're a new emperor. You're the new guy." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we don't have a plan. No, because they never do. <laughs> and so, so he becomes the the sub emperor yeah. of the far reaches. Yeah, the Caesar or whatever. Right, and then he has his own series of campaigns now mm-hmm. to carry out. Mm-hmm. And on the way. And on the way. Well, wait. Well, what what are you getting at? What's on? I'm the jumping to the conversion. Oh, you're jumping to the conversion. Yeah. Do okay. you want to? Did you want to do some? Up well, to the conversion. Well, okay. So one of the other one of the other emperors wants to essentially take his stuff. So he pretends that Constantine is dead, while Constantine's away fighting. Mm-hmm. And then, which kind of sparks this whole beef that he has, why he decides to march on Rome, mm-hmm. because this guy who pretended that he was dead in order to take his stuff, when he wasn't actually dead, is is hanging out there. So it's it's, it's there's he decides Constantine decides to march where. March on Rome. Right. So <laughs> this idea, <laughs> this idea of Diocletian, mm-hmm. that he was going to divide up the four, mm-hmm. because upstarts are going to be excited to just, and, and content to right. do their thing over here. Where is Diocletian ruling in all of this? He's in the east. I think. He's in the east, right? Yeah. And his boy... <laughs> Is the one destroying his whole plan. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. how did you not see that coming? <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets really, really messy. And so Constantine's kind of tired of getting jerked around. And so he's like, you know what? I'm just gonna take the whole thing. Yep. How about that? Yep. And uh why not? And he has some interesting experiences on his on his way. He does. Uh some some Pauline kind of experiences Mm, mm, yeah right yeah well okay so there there's like okay so one of them one of these experiences is he has a dream uh the night before battle he has a dream and he's instructed to have two greek letters written on the shields of his soldiers Mm -hmm. and they're the letters chi and rho right can i just say my dreams never make any sense yeah, no, neither do mine. I would never have a dream and wake up and be like, that's what I need to do. Right. Because at some point, someone's going to turn into a bird and fly away, and it just doesn't make any sense, and I'm like, I don't trust that dream. I almost never even remember any of my dreams. Yeah. Like, I have, I know that I have them, mm-hmm. but honestly, within 30 seconds of waking up, I couldn't tell you anything about yeah, it. Yeah, or even less. But anyway, yeah. he has a dream, and he's yep. like... We're going to do the thing in the dream. Yeah. We're going to write Greek letters on our Roman shields. Now, here's the thing about the chi and the rho. Mm-hmm. They are the first two letters in the Greek word for Christ, Christos. So if you've ever looked at high church things mm-hmm. and they have XP yeah. written on them, yeah, and you're like, what does XP stand for? It doesn't. It stands for Cairo. Mm-hmm. It's not experience points. 
<laughs> for the for if if our listener is a gamer, they'll they'll get that reference. Um, no, it is definitely a reference to to Christ, and so um, yeah, so he paints this on the shields of his of his army as they go into battle, which is a pretty significant move, right? Because this army nowhere. is also supposed to be killing every Christian, like searching out Christians to kill them, right? And he's just like, hey. Let's paint this on our shields. Right. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's another story of where as he's marching, he sees a cross up in the sky, mm-hmm. the clouds, the symbol of Christ in, in the heavens. Um, now, these things sound kind of extreme, but like they're related to us by Eusebius, who was the bishop of Rome. And knew Constantine like right. they were per, like they were they had a personal relationship mm-hmm. for for years and years and years. So this is, you know, um, essentially coming from someone who who would have spoken to to Constantine on a regular basis. So he has seen and, and who is a historian. Yes. yes. By the way, not just a religious person. No, you're right. He he is kind of the first true church historian. Right. And and wrote I mean, we've used Eusebius significantly so far in this podcast because he is one of the best ancient sources. Yeah. Without Eusebius, we would probably be on week three right now, jumping into Constantine. And our episodes would be like 10 minutes instead of like 45. (laughs) So, um, but he sees the cross, he sees the cross and he makes a vow, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If I win, then I'll know that it was God Mm -hmm. and we'll serve you. Yeah. Because when you're the emperor of Rome or, about to be the solo emperor of Rome, yeah. God needs you. <laughs> and so he's willing to make deals. <laughs> yeah, like at this point, Constantine's uh, Christianity is uh, it's not very well developed. No, it's not. <laughs> he's, not very, uh, he's not very familiar with how this whole thing works. Right, so he has his own Damascus Road experience. He does. And he wins the battle. He does. Two to one odds against him. And he smashes the enemy. And overnight, the great persecution is ended, mm. and Christianity is the official religion of Rome. No, it's wrong. That's that's no. Oh, but but that's what I've always heard. That's what people. <laughs> that's what people say. Yeah, he just made it the official religion of Rome. People say that all the time. Right. That is not what happened. Yeah. Part of part of understanding Constantine mm. is understanding what's not actually. Yeah. He he gets overly simplified. Yeah. People are always like, before Constantine, it was just these like perfect Christians with perfect theology um, who were being persecuted. And then after Constantine, it's the Roman Catholic Church with popes and everything. Mm-hmm. And everything that exists in the Roman Catholic Church now is overnight because Constantine ruined everything by making it the official religion of Rome. Right. And Constantine becomes, in a lot of people's minds, this theologian. Right. Right. He's not a theologian. Nobody believed in the Trinity. Until Constantine, right, right? Which we've already talked about Trinitarian yeah. documentation and sure, things like that. Sure, uh, the church never met on Sundays until, until Constantine, right? Right. He right. changed it because it's sun worship, right? Uh, and so <laughs> those are those are two of the the low hanging fruit. Sure, but people who want to come after the modern church as not being in step with what God designed as the early church. Everything comes back to Constantine. Yeah, it he, always comes back to Constantine. He's a whipping boy for sure. The reason, like, I, I think they're right to say that there are significant shifts. Oh yeah, under Constantine. Mm-hmm. 
the reason is not because he affects all these changes. It's because the church has gone from underground to above ground. Right. And now they got some space to breathe. Yeah. And they can bring their stuff to light Mm -hmm. and they can have these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even that doesn't happen like. No, not immediately. immediately. Right. There are some interesting things, though, like when Constantine then goes into Rome, what would have been normal would be for the the new emperor, the conquering uh, general to immediately go to the temple of Jupiter and offer Mm -hmm. sacrifices. And he doesn't do that. So, again, we're not saying, you know, we're not saying that uh, Constantine had, you know, filled out his church membership form yet, but he's already shifting away from the pagan expectations for an emperor. Right. I mean, my goodness, he painted the first two letters of Jesus' name on the shields of his army. So he's definitely taken steps in that in that direction. Um, It's the next year in 313 that Constantine meets with... um, the Eastern Roman Emperor Licinius, and they agree to the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity the official religion of Rome. Right. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it didn't do that, but it did do a few things. Um, It's not an enforcement of Christianity as the state religion. Right. Right. Keep in mind, it's like maybe maybe 10% of the population of the Roman Empire are Christians. Mm -hmm. You couldn't get away with that at this point. There's no way. There's no way that that would fly if if Constantine walked in and said everyone's a Christian now. Right. It, it wouldn't work. I, I have a political position mm. that I want to maintain that everyone before me has really struggled to maintain. <laughs> and I'm going to have 90% of my people against me Yeah. within my first year. Yeah. That's not good politics. No. What the Edict of Milan is is a statement regarding religious freedom. Right. Not even specifically Christian. No, like they're they're kind of mentioned but 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 mentioned like as being included under this umbrella right. of of religious freedom, right? Um now you could argue that at that time the one there was already kind of religious freedom for everyone but for everyone but the Christians. Right. So yep. so in that yep. sense it is kind of touches on that but it wasn't specifically stating yeah what what i'm trying to do is to say to dial it back from the edict that means christianity is the official state mm. no not even close in fact it's not even telling people hey leave christians alone mm. right indirectly it is it's saying we're going to allow people to worship how they worship for example the christians yeah and etc it's to grant what it says is uh, so we decided to grant uh, to gr- to Christians and to everybody the free power to follow the religion of their choice uh, in order that all that is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious uh, towards all who are placed under our authority. So essentially, they're just saying, OK, we're going to officially stop fighting about religion now. Mm-hmm. That's that's essentially what it is, because Constantine at this point, yes, trending in a very christian direction licinius no Mm -hmm. he's a pagan right so so again it's not that oh we're all christians now and that's this is the this is the new agenda it's saying we're just not going to do this anymore we're not going to do this thing where we we take perfectly decent people and burn them at the stake for not offering a sacrifice right can you so here here you go put yourself in the scenario 
you've been under Diocletian. Yeah. And you've seen Constantine mm-hmm. because he's there in the court. Mm-hmm. And your people, because you're a believer, your people are dying left and right, mm-hmm. publicly, viciously. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in and says, you come out from hiding, everybody. Mm. It's all good. Yeah. Are you like dancing in the streets? <laughs> or are you like, you know what? That uh, dark cave that we've been using to meet, it's not so bad. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to stay there for a bit. How are you responding to this? Yeah. Th- think as a pastor. As y- you're the, the local bishop. Yeah. It's definitely going to be a uh, very cautious optimism for yeah. sure. I'm going to let the other churches step out first. <laughs> I'm going to call my, my buddy bishops up, and I'm going to be like, hey, you know what? Yeah. You know what I heard? <laughs> I heard that the laws have changed. Why don't you, why don't you have a public service in the park? <laughs> maybe, maybe a sunrise Easter service in the park and, and see what happens. See how it goes. Yeah. yeah. I, I just can't imagine that Christians immediately mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. like, oh, good. I'm glad that's over. Yeah. Well, I think that's why his growing relationship with Eusebius was so important because Eusebius was this guy who was already around, already prominent in the church in Rome. And so after some time, it's like, well, okay, Eusebius is saying, well, I know this guy. I talk yeah. to this guy. It's, it's, we're good, right? Um, yeah, and his motives, I mean, obviously his motives are debated, right? Was he a genuine Christian at this point or was it just political? Yeah, I mean, there is something to that, mm-hmm. right? Here we've been in this empire that has these many gods. Yeah, No one person is in control, and even when that person is, they're just sort of in control for now. There's no future plan. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, your mom's been teaching you about this religion that has a divine king, a divinely, and in the Old Testament, divinely appointed kings. Right. And the idea that the king is put in place by God and that the New Testament scriptures say all authority is God's Mm -hmm. and he puts people in place Mm -hmm. to spread that news as the king is politically optimal. Right. Right. Yeah. And so so that is not to say that that's my stance on Constantine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that. I never met the guy. Right. I have no, I have no <laughs> reason to have an opinion on Constantine. Right, right. And and frankly, you don't either. Whoever, I'm, I'm not talking to you particularly, Marshall. I'm talking to anyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but you can see where critics come along mm-hmm. and say this is absolutely a political ploy. Mm-hmm. Now, as we said earlier, you're not going to just enforce it because you're going to, that's a terrible political ploy to be mm-hmm. like, hey, 90% of you need to shift mm-hmm. everything you've ever believed to the exact opposite yeah. of what you've been practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where when people say it's suspicious, that's where the suspicions come yeah. from. Yeah. Are they unfounded? Not exactly, but... To his credit, he puts his money where his mouth is. He does. Right? So He doesn't just claim it and walk away. No, no. So like these these buildings and this all this property that was seized from christians Mm -hmm. is like he orders that it be returned to them and the state compensates the people who have to return the property right so if i stole your house because you were a christian i confiscated your property and now i got to give it back 
the state is going to compensate me for that. That's an expensive endeavor, right? right. This oh was, yeah. This was this was not a a cheap thing, right? So so again, to his credit, puts his money where his mouth is. I mean, think about. I just think about like once that kind of initial cautiousness had kind of subsided. Just think of how amazing it must have been for the Christians at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the first time, right? Once they come out and the sun's shining on them, yeah. And they're they're understanding. I'm actually able to do this. Yeah, for the first time, they could publicly, openly worship without fear of any kind of persecution. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's like for the first time in church history. Right. And right? not only is it about properties and safety, when when he puts his money where his mouth is, mm-hmm. it seems as though he's talking to the church and saying, what are some of the greatest internal struggles right. that you have? Mm-hmm. These are the external struggles. What are the greatest external struggles you have? Mm-hmm. What are some of the greater internal struggles you have? Mm-hmm. And they he starts learning about heresies. Mm-hmm. And he starts empowering people to come against heresies. Mm-hmm. And he calls for people to come together and discuss orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Let's get this sorted out. Some of this has come about because of miscommunication, because people aren't allowed to gather and think together right. and read scripture together. You know what? You guys don't have to hide anymore. Not only do you not have to hide, I want to gather all of you together and make a space for you to talk about these things. Yeah. In some ways, Constantine is the best of times and the worst of times. Because a lot of what he brings is really helpful mm-hmm. and really progresses the kingdom. Mm-hmm. It also gets politicized. It does. Yeah. It gets politicized and the separation of church and state mm-hmm. fails for the first time, mm-hmm. um, which is why in the Reformation there's going to be calls for separation of church and state. They're going to say, before Constantine, we never had this. Right. We need this. We need to stay removed mm-hmm. uh, because some of the politicization ends up leading to, in my opinion, the great problems that will eventually lead to the Reformation. Yeah, they're not there day one, right? But Constantine definitely pushes that snowball down the hill, and it's going to pick up some serious steam before it's all done. Right. So, so I say that to say my take on Constantine is that he is paving roads. Mm. He is paving roads that aid the church, mm-hmm. and that will be some of its greatest hurdles in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's making making the opportunities mm-hmm. really more than anything else. So, is Constantine the great savior of the Christian faith? No, mm, no. But he does do a lot of good, mm-hmm. and I don't know where we would be if God hadn't have brought Constantine into the picture. Yeah, for sure. Is he the great evil of the church where he comes in and politicizes things and takes things on and and leads everything into a wrong path? No. No. He's not that either. He's just one man. He's a powerful man. Right. But he's just one man. He doesn't live forever. And most of the worst things that come about come about long, long, long after he's gone. Right. But he always gets pinned as the one. I know. He's the always either the bad guy or the hero. Mm-hmm. And and mostly the bad guy. Yeah. He's very seldom the hero. Yeah, in our circles particularly, right? Yeah. And and I, I I think you talk about our circles, our camp. I think there would be a lot of people listening to this and be like, you're giving way too much credit to Constantine. Mm. I can't believe you would say anything favorable mm-hmm. about Constantine. 
let's just say that the end of the great persecution is favorable. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself deserves mention. Right? Mm-hmm. The calling together of the greatest Christian minds of his time mm-hmm. and giving them a place to discuss. Mm. That's those are those are good things that yeah. I don't know where we would be without them. Sure. Sure. So yeah. Good on that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, well, next week we're going to talk about some of those discussions that he enabled. Right. And kind of those those things that, that come about because of, you know, his his leadership or his his desire for the church to figure out these internal issues. Now the main external threat that like Christians have been wrestling with for, you know, well over 200 years is now essentially done. Mhm. So now we got to figure our own business out right Right. So. And, and, and that means we're gonna we're gonna slow down in our progress through time sure we're not gonna be clipping off a century for a little bit right in an episode we're gonna have to sit here for a moment mm-hmm. because now the church has to figure out who they are yeah and and what do they look like after all of this roman persecution mm-hmm. and what do they do with those preserved documents and these teachings both good and bad yeah and and from this is going to rise a number of great teachers that are going to hold to truth mm-hmm. and a number of heretics that are going to be exposed we're going to see foundations formed in a really special way and yeah. and this sort of late constantine era is really pivotal mm-hmm. for the church the the 300s and the 400s are just an exciting time they are in the are. church yeah yeah maybe not the early 300s <laughs> the mid to late 300s 313 onwards 313 and the four onward and the 400s, <laughs> yeah. and the 400s yeah. are a really exciting time yeah. for the church yeah they are they are yeah. yeah which is fun because we spent so much time talking about hard things mm. persecution mm-hmm. death and and we get to lighten up for a bit. We do, which is kind of nice. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Yeah, it'll be a little less a uh, little less negative for a bit. Um, well, so yeah, looking forward to getting into that. We're at the 50 minute mark. I noticed you just looked into your coffee cup, and apparently it's empty. I got a drop. Do you got anything else you want to drop before we? Ooh, nice. Before we uh, close up. No, I'm good. All right, let's. Let's do it then. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care. See you later.